this week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Ziak and Tim Minichi. Jay, we're back again with another episode thanks to our Dig Me Out Union on Patreon. You can help us make the next episode happen by joining us at dmounion.com or digmeoutunion.com. Jay, it's the first episode of April after the month of March, which seemed to last seven years. It was the longest March in recorded history. Now we're into April, which means we have a new poll from our patron suggestions or our, or our website suggestions that our patrons vote on. And this time, not only did we have one poll, we had a tie. So then we had a second poll, which is fun. And it, ha- it happens. It does. So let's go back to our original poll, Jay. These were the options in our original poll over at Patreon. New Radiant Storm King, Hurricane Necklace, Nancy Boy's self-titled album, Face to Face, Ignorance is Bliss, Boards of Canada, Music Has the Right to Children, The Wedding Presents, Sea Monsters, Something for Kate, Beautiful Sharks, The Cranes, Wings of Joy, and Tree People, Guilt, Regret, Embarrassment. That is a very diverse and interesting poll because there's really not a well-known band in that list. And sometimes we get like an Elliot Smith or a you know previous polls that have like one dominant like well-known band even though they might not win there's usually like one but really like face to face might be the the most well-known band amongst that list Mm -hmm. however that's not how the voting went down the vote ended up being a tie between boards of canada and something for kate boards of canada suggested by philip kustos and something for Kate by Philip Hawkins. So then I went to the all-important tiebreaker, and by a score of 54% to 46%, and this was a down-to-the-wire vote, Boards of Canada, Music Has the Right right to Children, won our runoff. And that's what we're going to talk about on this episode, Jay. Were you familiar with Boards of Canada? Uh, I remember the name. I it's one of those names though. You have and the album cover doesn't help you, where you just have no idea what this band is going to be about. Like it could be right. anything. Yeah, I think I got them mixed up with Godspeed, you Black Emperor. Yeah, <laughs> that's funny. Yep, I can see that. It was one of those like long names that I was like, I don't know what this is, but maybe yeah. it's in this genre. I don't know. So let's go to our our. I, I didn't I didn't really listen to much of this band. I heard the name like you, but I didn't yep. really know much. So let's go to the comments on this. Scott <laughs> Scott Hallgram, I believe, said that something for Kate Font is the worst, so Boards of Canada gets my vote. <laughs> okay. He's a he's a font uh fanatic. <laughs> um Whitney Biller said, I know someone named Kate and sharks are cool, so something for Kate gets my vote. <laughs> Clearly, we're using the highest level of criteria to make these decisions. Thank right. you, Scott and Whitney. Um, Steve Musitsky said, oh, man, 
I just tied it, but I got to hold my ground here. We simply can't have two Something for Kate albums and zero Boards of Canada. Come on, people. And then Patrick Testa said, I gotcha. And he was the one who pushed the vote over to Boards of Canada. Arlene Moreau said, Something for Kate has a new single out April 2nd. Having you cover one of their albums in April would be great. Sadly, we're not, but we're going to mention that Something for Kate has a, a new single out. Also, we've covered them before. Many years ago, we did a Something for Kate album. So you can go into the archives and dig that one out if you want to listen to, listen to us talk about some something. something. If you want to listen to us talk about some Something for Kate. Some Something for Kate. That's a, that's a hard sentence to get out. Frank Garcia Hell, I love that Boards of Canada album, but I've somehow never heard something for Kate. I just checked it out on Spotify, and I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on that album. Strangely, I've never crossed the, come across the band. To what I said, strangely, I've never come across the band is our motto. Yeah, I, Those that's kind of why we're here. Yeah. <laughs> we also got comments from the original poll. From Jason Pan, Andrew O.C., Ian Wobble, Davey Bright, Darren Leach. We're not going to get into all of them or else we'll be here for a while. But thanks, everybody, for commenting. We also need to mention that we have two new uh, patrons. We do. We do. Lars and Richard, thank you both for joining us at the $2 level. We greatly appreciate your support. We know and, you know... In these times, you could be spending your entertainment dollars anywhere. So we appreciate you supporting the podcast. We'll have stickers going out for to you uh, soon for your uh, sticker collection. We should do a dig me out sticker book, Jay, so people can collect the different stickers. Oh and, yeah, and put it in their book. I used to have a sticker book. Did you? Oh yes, I love the scratch and stiff. Those yeah. were my favorite stickers. Or the I ones that the, you get like uh, six of them and they form a picture. I used to love the the baseball and football sticker books. Did you ever do those? Yep. Oh yeah. I love those. Oh, yes. That's how I, I knew about anything going on in baseball. Was yeah. I knew every player because I had, I had stickers or right. was hunting stickers. So let's talk a little bit about Boards for Canada or Boards of Canada. History of the band. Not from Canada. That's the first what? thing you should know. No, Edinburgh, Scotland. It's two brothers, Michael Sanderson and Michael Eon Sanders- Sanderson. Um, so here's the thing. They were born in Scotland, but for a couple years, their dad worked construction in Calgary building the Saddle Dome. And that's how they have a connection to Canada. They both attended the University of Edinburgh, where Michael studied music and Marcus studied artificial intelligence. However, Marcus dropped out before completing his degree. They all have uh, they have a musical family, and they have been recording on various types of uh, devices t- since the 80s, just doing little like recording projects for fun. Mm-hmm. And in 1995, they made their first actual recording called Twoism. It was an EP. And then they released a uh, second EP in 1986 called High Scores. That followed with Music Has the Right to Children, which is their debut album. It was released 
on, well, depending on which country you're in, Warp Records or Scam Records or Matador Records, produced by Marcus and Michael. Um, and very highly regarded when it came out. All music called a landmark album for electronic music. Uh, it got uh, you know eight out of ten in spin. It got uh, ten out of ten from Pitchfork. Enemy at eight out of ten. So this is and it's it's in Pitchfork's top one hundred albums of the nineties. Not just electronic, but just albums of the nineties. Mojo's uh, one hundred classics albums, and it's on the list of. There's a book called One Thousand and One Albums You Must Hear Before You Die. And it's included in that book as well. So, even though you and I were not familiar, this does have a a legacy, I guess you'd say. And so the band has actually gone on. Uh, the brothers have released uh, albums into the 2000s, uh, 2002, 2005 and 2013, they released records, and then they've had EPs out, um, 99, 2000, 2006. Let's get into the record, Jay. Tell Let's me one, one thing you liked about Music Has the Right to Children by Boards of Canada. I, I want to flip it around on you. I want you to go first because I oh, think okay. you're going to be more comfortable with this genre and sure. probably give me something to work with. Sure. Uh, you know, listening to this, one thing that I liked is, and, and there's more than one thing, but you know, the '90s are known for when it comes to electronic music, either like uptempo electronica, in the vein of Prodigy or Chemical Brothers, stuff like that, or like the trip hop of mm-hmm. Massive Attack, Tricky, you know, Portishead. Those are like the two big ones from the that are really established. In the 90s, you can see there's electronic music that was like industrial that was already existing when it came into the 90s, like Ministry and Nine Inch Nails and stuff like that. But to me, those are two genres that exist sort of specifically to the 90s, like the way that like Britpop does. Mm -hmm. So what's interesting is hearing a band that is a little bit outside of both of those. There's there are some trip hop elements to this band, but they're much more in the vein of like what I would describe as down tempo which if you're listening to, it's sort of in the vein of trip hop, but it tends to have like a bit of a lounge feel almost, like a chill feel. Whereas I think of trip, trip, trip hop as having a little bit more menace in the music. When I think of like mm-hmm. tricky and massive attack, like those are, that's music that has like an edge to it. it tends to be more like minor driven, I think. And I don't think that, down tempo and chill and and that kind of stuff um works in that same way also there's a little bit of like psychedelic aspect to this um so the vibe of this record overall works for me Uh, i like instrumental electronic music i like to put it on um especially when i'm working so i can put this record on and just listen to it over and over again and uh, but I also, because I like to fool around with making music of this style, I find it inspirational. Knowing that they were using a lot of like analog equipment to do this, 
based on what I was reading. A lot of it is vintage synthesizers, um, old analog tapes. It's not a lot of computers. Mm. It's them cutting stuff up and doing it in a very old school way to put it all together. Um, mm-hmm. There's even some like field recordings where they would go out and just like capture the sounds of things and then loop them and create, and, you know, and then affect those sounds. Um, it's it it hits me in the same way that like listening to the first couple Portishead records, where it sounds like music I'm familiar with, but when I actually like drill down and like really focus on it, it they're taking things that are really unusual and creating a this soundscape. So what it works for me is is the overall like I guess presentation in terms of it works as a full album start to finish. I like the vibe, I like the just what the way that they build this record from from the opening track. It reminded me a little bit of the Uncle Records that James Lavelle does where it it's a little bit like uh I don't want it's not um concepty record it's not it's not a concept record but there's definitely like a vibe that follows through the whole record so it's weird to talk about a record that is you know so not lyrical driven right we're usually you know focusing on melody in a lot of ways as driving the songs right and i, and I think about this when i when i listen to like oh you know like vangelis or something you know, like those 70s or or um Tangerine Dream or you know soundtracks of John Carpenter movies you know what I mean like that's that's yeah. the way that's the mindset I have to be in to like listen to this it's a purely like emotional response like you're not you just either get the music and you like it or you're bored within like two minutes of hearing it and I, I've never been you know a huge electronic fan I, I like I don't own that many records but I do like listening to it as far as certain situations, which is like working and writing and stuff like that. But I wouldn't, you know, this is not something I'm going to put on like Saturday morning on a a record and listen to it. Like, it's just, it's not that right vibe for me. That's how I, I guess that's what works for me is the overall presentation, this, the way it sounds, the, yeah, it's hard to put a finger on it. Yeah. So what are your, what are your thoughts on it? Yeah. You, you hit on, um, I think, what a work for this for me, which doesn't I'm not a huge electronic music fan, but I think I enjoyed this more than a lot of the other bands that you or groups that you mentioned and albums you mentioned because the, um, the use of the analog equipment and just an overall, like even the soundscapes these, which usually annoy me, um, I think conceptually here work because they bring this ambient kind of human environmental thing. Like you feel as you're listening to the, to the music, which is, you know, it, it's somewhat analog in that, you know, it's the electronics are more analog driven, but for the most part, it's electronic, the ambient stuff and the field recordings bring this like almost like there's a party going on or just this casual gathering of people sometimes. Yeah. You know, yeah. That you're in the middle of, and it just creates this environment that's inherently human, um, which is a natural, which is, I think a good, uh, contrast to try to you know continue to to give this a theme and and have it be cohesive um despite you know some of the the stuff that's clearly electronic you know i'm a fan of analog synth 
Um, so there's some great analog synth sounds on here. Yeah. You know, the, the stranger Things soundtrack probably primed me for this a little bit. Like if I would have heard this at the time, maybe I wouldn't have enjoyed it as much as I do now having, you know, listened to that uh, quite a bit. So uh, I also like, there's a couple songs on here where, you know, melodically what's going on is, um, they'll create these little lines, um, and patterns, um, using, you know, synth lead tones or electric piano tones or, um, what have you. And uh, the thing I like about them is that there's a randomness to them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so they repeat in some way and you can kind of get a hook and a melody formed fairly quickly, but there's something about the way it's performed and maybe processed that gives us this random feel like that just changes a little bit with every repetition. Um, and I love that idea. I think that is one of my favorite things about the record. And then they, when it works well, like I think Roy G. Biv is an example where mm-hmm. it starts to layer. And there is, um, I think another thing that makes it interesting is there's a unique relationship between the bass lines, the drums and that lead part so that it's not always, even the, the bass and drums aren't always completely locked up. You know, there'll be a bass line established that's, kind of its own cool little dark sounding thing, but then the drums will be not, they'll, they'll be a little off of that. Like, yeah, they'll lock up on the one or whatever, or the, you know, the, the bass, the, the drums will play a triplet and the, and the bass line will lock up, but like it'll ring out. And like, there's this contrast between either like the bass notes ringing out or the drums being like the pattern being longer. So you get the space, um, that I don't always hear in electronic music where it, tends to be a lot like tighter and more compressed. There's like the space created just between the, the way they handle the drums and the bass. And then over top of that, they can kind of do anything like with these repeating little melodies that kind of change and evolve and layer or appear a little bit random. And then they can kind of bring in the ambient piece to, to thread in the, um, sort of fill out the space. works well for me there's this really cool combination of of those things going on and just musically it's put together in a way that's it has variety you know it builds there's some little interludes that aren't overdone you know they're just nice little Mm -hmm. you know one or two minute things that kind of stitch songs together which are nice so when they hit that i think it it works really well and they really take advantage of the analog synth stuff you know i'm a big fan of that so those are some of the things that that tend to work for me yeah, I you know you mentioned Roy Biv. The other one that's like a highlight for me is Turquoise Hexagon Sun. It's got that like a little electric piano sounding lead, 
And it's just like like you said, it's just this right level of chill that it never it's never overpowering. You know, this could easily have they could have easily gone in a different direction with some of the stuff where it could have gotten you could have used some harsher tones and and made it more abrasive. But yeah. for the most part, it is very consistent in terms of whatever instrument they're using, they're always tending to stay pretty like, I guess, you know, if you're thinking in terms of a keyboard, everything tends to be like down the middle. Like everything is like middle C area. Whereas yeah. there's not a lot of high, and I mean, obviously there's bass notes and stuff like that, but there's no like big sub bass stuff going on. And right, there's no, right. like everything is the is the right tone for, if you were to pick out, you know, the the longer tracks that are just instrumental, they don't have any like vocal samples, you could kind of create a little playlist to just have it playing at your cocktail party sort of thing. And it would it would work. I think it's it's pretty cool that you know, and I had to read about it is just how much of this was just built from the ground up, which sort of reminded me of uh, um, who what what band was it that oh it was the Doves like they were an electronic band and then everything like burned in a fire and they had to redo their band hmm. and then they formed the Doves like the Doves were going to be like supposed to be an electronic band right. and then they basically formed a completely new band because all their stuff was ruined. Like they had all this equipment and <laughs> loops and everything and it was just gone. So they're like, we're not going to try to recreate that. So, right. and then the doves were born and I'm, it's just, it's interesting to see like, you know, a band take a genre that can be pretty stale and, and, you know, electronic music, you know, you can push a button on a, on a keyboard and get a loop built for you. Right, right. And, and I'm hypersensitive to that. <laughs> right. And that's that's pretty easy to do. Yeah. So when it's done really poorly, you can hear it. Whereas here you can hear like they put a lot of time into constructing these you know, longer tracks that have some variation throughout them. They build, they tend to, you know, go through a little bit of a transformation and then these shorter like interludes that are sprinkled throughout the record because it's a longer record. You know, it's like 61 minutes. Actually, it's 71 minutes. Um, right. Right. Hour 11 minutes. Yep. 18 songs. Yeah. So, and it's not a guided by voices record uh, right. or else if it would be 18 songs and it'd be 23 minutes. <laughs> so, right. um, so it's interesting to hear like the complete opposite end of there's no, there's nothing stock that I, that I hear, like everything you can hear is sort of, you know, manufactured from their, uh, collection of whatever they're using real to real tapes and, and, and old synthesizers. And, and like you said, like hearing 
you know, that, that Stranger Things soundtrack is a good gateway for people who have not listened to a lot of electronic music or synthesizer music because it, it draws on so much from the past, but also sounds contemporary. Like it, it gives you a hint of nostalgia, even though they're using like, you know, modern keyboards and stuff like that to do all that. Right. Um, there's actually a good video. You can go on to um, YouTube and there's a video of them explaining how they wrote the theme to stranger things and like what that keyboard is and how they use a filter to you know, when you listen to it, you hear the rise of the one particular um, arpeggio loop. And it's just, it's, yeah. it's all it is, is one note, but then they're just, they're using a filter envelope to open that up and then close it back down. So it's, it's, it's a much different way when you're thinking about making music, you know, it's not a matter of proficiency in terms of how many notes you can play. It's a proficiency of how can you manipulate what what you're doing with regards to effects and yeah. understanding how frequencies work and how to manipulate them so there's a there's a different skill set involved which i think well, is interesting yeah, i think that's why i respond so much more to the analog synth realm is because you're yeah you're 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 truly treating it as an instrument because you're starting with tones primal tones and then you're understanding like how to manipulate them in the same way that you would if you were playing a piano, like right. the intensity and the vibrato and all those elements from an you know um, acoustic instrument. You're able to bring to analog synth, which just I, I don't know. I just respond more to that. It just feels more musical. I also liked. I mean to 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 go back to the point you were talking about, about, you know, kind of creates this, I do a really good job of maintaining a, like a mood and a vibe that, uh, has a certain level of intensity to it. And even with the drums, like, even though they're using drum machines, like the, the intensity, like, because with drum machines, you can change the velocity. So it sounds like somebody's playing more aggressively or less aggressively. Right. Like how, like it's trying to mimic how hard you would hit a drum they've even tuned all that you can tell like they're not because they're not using you know um loops or or, or samples like they're creating their own beds from the from the ground up they're able to like do it in a way that where it's all consistent and it it matches the vibe which i really appreciated so the the stuff that's mellow like the feel of the drums is mellow even though it's not a real drummer like tonally it sounds right like nothing sounds too intense or like out of left field and kind of tacked on um so i appreciate that as well what well i'll, I'll say I'll, let's get into what what didn't work yeah um there's a couple tracks where they they have vocal samples yeah and it, i <laughs> i learned some of those vocal samples are from sesame street the counting one yeah so that i like on aquarius yeah
that didn't necessarily work as well for me. I could have, I could have completely ignored or or had a record with no vocal samples. I, I did think on Telefastic Workshop, the way they manipulate the vocal in that song is kind of cool. Where they're, they're like chopping it off. Like the, that's clearly like a vocal that is being manipulated. And uh-huh. I thought that was a cooler approach than just having a person having their vocal repeated over and over again, uh, like on Aquarius, even though it gets a little repetitive because yeah. it's like six and a half minutes. But I thought it was an interesting way, but I didn't, I didn't love the vocals just in terms of the vibe of the record. Yeah. Is this the, um, is this record have the least amount of vocals we've ever reviewed? I'm trying uh, to think of something else. That, that null record didn't have any vocals. Oh, that's true. <laughs> that might be the okay. only one. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, and I think the samples get old, uh, the, the vocal, whatever you want to call it. Um, uh, they get old fast too. Yeah. Um, you know, how many times like musically I could listen to this over and over again, but the, you know, the, anytime you hear the voices, it starts to get, and it's not musical. It, it gets kind of annoying to me. Yeah. Um, so I'll, I'm with you there. I, I don't think it added a ton to the songs either. Uh, some of the stuff that is severe loop wise, and you can hear like blatant cuts, like Rue the, the whirl is a good example of, I'm less interested in that. That that makes me a little bit insane when I can hear things like on short loops. I'm just <laughs> oh, it, where it's like do 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 yeah do, yeah. You hear the little like hiccup short, short loops with with yeah blatant cuts in them. Like I just that that's just one of those things that just goes like makes me really irritated. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, so any of the any of the stuff that that is like that, like telefastic workshop, like. It's interesting, but there is a lot of edits in that. So I think the more they, the tracks where they do more editing, um, and loop creation and more cycles, that type of stuff, I don't tend to connect to as much. You know, Aquarius is a little weird because it gets a little funky. <laughs> like it kind of takes a step a little too far into like, I don't know if it's electric piano or whatever it is, but it's got like a, almost like a Wawa effect on it or something. Um, and, you know, so they kind of, they, when they step out of that, that zone we talked about earlier of these, you know, more of that syncopated rhythm with these interesting melodies over top that are seemingly, you know, a little bit hooky, but also a little random when they step outside of that box and either get too funky or too repetitive the experiment with vocals like those are the times where uh, i'm a little less interested yeah i think the um the thing you mentioned with um rue the world it's that little glitch and i tend not to like i don't like electronic music that gets glitchy like i I can only take so much like aphex twin i have to like find the more ambient stuff of Aphex yep. Twin, and that's why I've tried listening to, say, Mouse on Mars and Autecker and some other stuff, and I just, like, if it's too glitchy, I can't relax when I'm listening to it. Like, it right. just, it just it's, it's like, a, like you said, it's like a sort of a subconscious thing where 
it like kind of gets under my skin and I can't, um, I can't not focus on it because I'm, I'm getting annoyed by where these like weird uneven parts are coming in. And to me, there's a natural like flow that my, my brain wants to happen when I hear electronic music. And when you start throwing in like where you know, the time is getting cut weird and it's not flowing, then I'm starting to like not get it. Yeah. Yep. So, so this record comes out in 90, no, 98. Sorry. Came out in 1998. Mm. It did get in the top 200 in the UK. That was the only place it charted. I don't think that this, <laughs> there's, I mean, other than like music soundtracks, this is not going to do anything in the United States in 1998, as far as from like a commercial sure, standpoint. Right, right no. I, I just, no. I cannot imagine that. Now, I mean, from a, I guess you'd say like a, you know, a musician point of view, I could see where people who were into, you know, like I was into Massive Attack and, the, and Portishead and Tricky and stuff in the, in the 90s. If somebody had pointed me in this direction, I probably would have been into this because I like those bands and this is just a slight turn from those bands. Uh, so I'm sure there were people who found it that way who were more tuned in, but it's a hard sell for any sort of mainstream outlet to, to pick up on. Sure. So let's talk about overall ratings then. Worthy album, worthy 18 track album, better EP, or decent single? I'm at an EP. What would it be on my EP? An Eagle in Your Mind. Yep. Tur- Turquoise Hexagon Sun. Roy G. Biv. I like the two little, I guess they're not, they're around two minutes. There's like, there's two, the Kane Industries and Bokuma that are before that, that almost, I guess I could include those as like my favorite interludes on the record. What else? I like Open the Olsen what? interlude. Yeah. It kind of has a, um, a failure uh, interlude sound, like yeah. on, uh, would it be on their record? I think "Open the Light," maybe Pete standing alone. But you know, I think that's uh, probably a f- you know a forty minute ish, thirty to forty minute EP that uh, I think I would enjoy quite a bit. I'm with you. I think I would. Pro- I might add um, maybe "Open the Light." Did you have that one? Yeah, yeah. That I'm, has that. That the the beginning of that song sounds exactly like Stranger Things. <laughs> like I'm like, oh wow, was this on the soundtrack? <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah, with that like, yeah, yeah. Um, I also do, I don't mind the the last track, Happy Cycling. So, what what what's going on with uh, one very important thought? The it's talking about government censorship and. If you're on a panel or if you're on a if you're a juror in a government censorship trial, you should think about it because it could censor music like this. And I'm like, you don't have any lyrics in your music. Who would censor? Well, this? I'm guessing that they they must have sampled that from something. Oh, or, OK. You know what I mean? Like that's that's weird because it's two guys in the band. So unless they had somebody record that for them. But it doesn't say where like I'm looking at the Wikipedia and it doesn't like attribute that. I'm sure there's a page somewhere. That tells you where like any samples that they use. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. it's just a weird. Even if it's a sample, it's just a weird sample to have on this record. Because I'm like, wait a minute, did they sound? Is there something controversial on this record? <laughs> like, they don't say anything. Who would ever censor this? This would be like the last record censored. 
That's true. <laughs> so I was, I'm, uh, maybe like, do they say stuff on their other records and not on this one or what exactly? Why is this? It's just odd. I was checking out the Discogs page because sometimes on Discogs, depending on which release you look at, it'll it'll list if there are sampler samples that are credited to a another artist or the list if there's like a guest or something. But oh, interesting. The US version has 18 songs. The Happy Accident or sorry, Happy Happy Cycling is a bonus track in the US. Uh, okay. It was not on the original version. I thought it was it was a bit of a, a it, it seemed like one important thing should have ended the record. That yeah, was my I guess so. I don't know why you needed a bonus is, track, but is the uh album cover did you see anything? Is there anything significant about the album cover? Uh it's just it's just a picture of their family from when they were yeah. kids. But with the faces taken off. Right. Which gives it a very creepy vibe. It does. <laughs> Um, I'm with you. I'm at more of an EP. I probably like a six or seven song EP. Um, most of the tracks that you mentioned, I'm I'm good with. Yeah, it's a cool record. I don't know that I love every part of it, and I I think I'll definitely like pull a bunch of the instrumentals that we talked about and put them into my. I have a massive yep. instrumental playlist for mm-hmm. uh, for just such occasions when I want to just listen to some instrumental music. So. They'll be going in there. If you want to, you can find me over on Spotify and I have a instrumental playlist. It's called the instrumental mega mix. (laughs) You want to guess how many songs are in there, Jay? Well, it's a mega mix. I mean, there has to be how many is a mega 2,425 songs. Oh, okay. Mega is a 2000 or a thousand. I don't know, but it's got, it's 211 hours of music. So if you needed, you know, it's, it's a long quarantine. So, yeah, well, that's true. <laughs> and I guess I didn't even know that down tempo was a subgenre. Oh, yes, sir. And I'm yeah. looking at like, I guess I kind of likes, I mean, if I like electronic music, it's probably down tempo. Like looking at some of the other artists in this. Jay, that's the music I make. I make dy- down tempo. Oh, okay. More ambient, but the last album had some down tempo. Yeah, uh, if if you're into you know the the stuff that I mentioned with regards to Massive Attack and Portishead, obviously that's more lyrical driven. But I think some DJ Shadow I would consider down tempo. Not everything would be some other rough some down tempo uh, stuff. I'm looking at the Essentials down tempo playlist from apple and it's portishead air air yeah it's a good one moby dj shadow massive attack groove armada mm-hmm. now there's one on here that threw me where'd it go erica badu i don't know i don't know enough about erica yeah. badu to i mean she might do some in that style fila brasilia yeah radio radiohead sea feel is another one that i've heard that's in that category. And a lot, and, you know, a lot of these bands are influenced by folks like Eno and Kraftwerk and, yeah. and, uh, like I mentioned, Apex Twin. And they also, even like Wendy Carlos and, um, you know, some of that like hooked on Bach, <laughs> like, like Mike Oldfield, like that stuff from the, the, uh, 70s and 80s. 
I see. So we need to thank our patrons for suggesting this record. We need to thank Paul Custos, who made the suggestion. You can be like Paul. You can go to our website, digmeoutpodcast.com, and you can suggest a record. We have a suggest a record link. You pop it in there. You tell us why you're suggesting the record. Boom. It gets added into a poll. You can also, while you're there, sign up for our box newsletter. It comes out once a week. We keep track of all records relevant to the 90s. That, and the 80s. And the 80s, because we do an 80s podcast every other month. And we also throw some reviews up there. We just did uh, recently, this uh, this past week, Vast Robot Armies, which, if you're not aware, is the... A band that's been around for a while, but Kelly Scott has joined on drums, and the album was produced. Kelly Scott, of course, a failure, and then the album was produced by Jordan Zadarozny of Blinker the Star. You know, not it's not always going to be, this is the new Offspring record. It might be some things that are tangentially connected to the 80s and 90s that we cover. Yeah, I, I was, and it, this has been, a, I think, a, a discovery opportunity for for us as well each week i'm finding stuff that i would have never known about so like uh, oh yeah godzillionaire i didn't know mark hennessy from paul had an, another band and they put out a new record and it's produced by the guy from shiner and mm-hmm. it's, pretty, it's pretty interesting like it's not paul but it's definitely got that little bit of a weird I don't know how, any other way to say it, but like it takes some turns here and there. Yeah. In the same way that Paul does, where you're like, I didn't expect that. But one of uh, many records that's come out this year that uh, I probably wouldn't have known about had I not been trying to track all these down. Yep. We've, and, you know, we've got records, uh, reviews up there, not just for Fast Road Armies, but recent releases by Pearl Jam, Wendy and Carl, speaking of ambient and electronic, although that's not an electronic band, they're all analog guitar and bass in that ambient or ambient excuse me band mm. uh you know other releases recently uh the boomtown rats and no Fla- no gallagher's high flying birds ep from them this year and baby chaos another band that people might not yeah. remember like who knew baby chaos was putting out new records yeah <laughs> and i'm sure you know we've got new records coming up from a lot of bands Local Age, yeah. Ultimate Fake Book, Sparta, Sparta, Soul Asylum, Danzig va- sings Elvis, The Vapors. <laughs> yep, and and the ones the single I heard is actually really good. Like I was super ex- like uh, excited. I, I want to hear what this sounds like, and they haven't done anything in a long time. I did just hear though that uh, Throwing Muses pushed theirs back to the fall. Mm-hmm which I think you're probably going to see artists that don't need to put it out right now and yeah. you know might have had a tour ready to go or there's a good chance they're going to be pushing them back. Definitely if they were planning a tour, I could see it that yeah. happening. Well, I think also because printing plants are shut down. Oh, wow, that's true. So it's not like you can have your records printed. I mean, that's we found that out with the I don't know if you've been paying attention um to Ken Andrews uh youtube page but he put up a new post and he said that they can't get they were going to do a box set of the first three records all three remastered because the comfort re-release that came out years ago was not mastered correctly and they like cut off part of a song Mm. so he wanted to do it correctly so they're doing all three in a box set and they can't get the box set produced 
because the company that they were going to use, you know, press it is closed. Right. Wow. So I'm sure a lot of artists are, are dealing with that right now. Yeah. I hadn't even thought about that. Well, not only the production, but I've, well, maybe not shipping, but like the record stores don't open. So who are you shipping, shipping them to? Yeah. I guess Amazon. Direct to the people. Well, Amazon, they said that they're like not making that a priority right now. Yeah. Books and CDs and or books and records or whatever. Entertainment stuff is not a high shipping priority for them. So right. unless you're buying it directly from the artist and having it shipped to your house, you're you're probably having a hard time tracking this stuff down. While you're at home, why don't you write up a review over at Apple Podcasts for us? Yeah, there you go. How about that segue? And uh, leave us some positive feedback if you wouldn't mind. We greatly appreciate it. So for Jay, I'm Tim. We're out, and we'll be back next week with another episode. Dig me out. Thanks for listening. To support the podcast, visit www.patreon.com forward slash dig me out and become a monthly subscriber at www.digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages as well as our merchandise store at Zazzle.com.